Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again, flying this ship solo, baby! Zero idea why I just decided to do that at the end of the, intro- at the, end of the introduction, but I did, and I am not taking it out. Uh, but we are back, ready to kick off a new month. Um, <clears throat> we are past the 1990s, um, and uh, even though we didn't actually finish up with everything that we wanted to, uh, I think we got a, several good episodes in. I'll I'll address some of the missing stuff um, at the end of at the end of this month. I think in a, like a little kind of catch up uh, little catch up episode uh, at the end here. But uh, you know we got a lot to get to, so we might as well just jump into it. We are kicking off a new month, and we are kicking off Sci Fi September. We are getting in deep in the nitty gritty with some Sci Fi stuff. Um, these first couple episodes are going to serve as more of an introduction to science fiction. Um, we're going to be talking some science fiction literature and, you know, where kind of where and how it emerges um, in, in literature and how it's a much older story, a, a much older form of storytelling than you might think. And then uh, in our second uh, Origins episode, we're going to be talking about some plays, some radio plays and early cinema um, early cinema and uh, how sci-fi was very critical to um, very critical to establishing um, establishing the movies as a uh, as a as a go-to right something that was more than just a, a gimmick. I mean, I think people obviously were interested in movies uh, early on in the uh, early on in the uh, very beginning of the 20th century, but it still was you know still a novel. A novel way to sort of see, uh, a novel way to get your entertainment that really didn't take foothold right away, um, in a big way. And sci-fi was pretty critical in um, establishing a foothold, is it, it establishing cinema's foothold, um, and and you know helping to, helping to give birth to it as like the dominant form of entertainment in, uh, in a, both in America and abroad. Um, <clears throat> so there you go. So we're going to talk about some literature, and then we're going to talk about some radio plays and early cinema in the first two episodes. Um, so we're going to kick off this first episode of Origins. I'm going to kick it off with a little bit of a preamble here to kind of talk about what I want to talk about. What is sci-fi? What science fiction is? And I think I think it kind of gets mischaracterized a little bit. Maybe not. Maybe mischaracterized isn't the correct way to put it. But I think the what really the essence of sci-fi is kind of gets lost in the trappings of sci-fi and. I'll explain that here in a second. So I think the term science fiction, it it elicits a lot of ideas about what defines it as an entertainment genre, right? Like when I say sci-fi, you probably think of like advanced technology. Um, You think of aliens, uh, maybe like androids and cyborgs, time travel. Uh, Probably more recently, you think of like dystopian societies and governments, uh, maybe global warfare, um, maybe even intergalactic or interstellar warfare. Like those things are the first things that jump to mind. And I think that you would be correct in describing those as as the um, the characteristics, some of the characteristics of sci-fi, but not like the essence, not the core fundamental pieces of what sci-fi actually is. So these things are all correct, but think of them more as window dressing, um, <clears throat> window dressing versus the foundation of what sci-fi is. Um, I think maybe these things are more extensions of what the true like core tenets of, of what science fiction are. So I, so I boiled these down to sort of three things. I think that kind of, um, maybe you could have, maybe you could have more, maybe you could even kind of condense them a little bit, but, um, to kind of, uh, to follow along with, uh, one of the sci- early sci-fi writers that we're going to talk about a little bit later, I felt like uh, I felt like having three sort of the three laws of uh, of science fiction were kind of science fiction literature were kind of um, it just seemed apropos to start the episode with this. So here are my three uh, science fiction. Excuse me. Let's call them my three science fiction core tenets. So the first core tenet is pondering the future consequences of our current choices. We can create a story about humans living under the oppressive under an oppressive machine society and and use that as like an extremely blunt sort of vision of what might come to pass if in the present time 
AI is allowed to take over more of our lives, right? Um, that that is just a, a natural extension of the ideas of what happens when can, when human thought and human um, emotion and human decisions are are no longer involved in some of the things that we do on the daily. Um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's ordering food or um, suggesting TV shows, but eventually, as the computers as artificial intelligence does more and more of our thinking and becomes more sentient that, um, you know, it could lead to an oppressive society where the AI, where the machines are now the overlords and do not that we're like, not that we're suddenly like the slaves or anything, but we're sort of passive, uh, passengers in our own lives as AI does stuff for us. So that's the first one, pondering the future consequences of our current choices. The second core tenet of science fiction literature, exploring areas of new knowledge. As certain areas of science or philosophy expand, the stories we tell expand to fill in these gaps in our understanding and fill in these questions about the what ifs and, you know, what could be, right? Like those kind of questions emerge once once we're introduced to new things and new knowledge comes to us, right? Think about it like this as a very, very concrete example. There's a boom in stories about traveling to the moon and traveling to other planets. And space travel stories in sci-fi become very, very big. And those coincided with the expansion of human understanding of rocketry and rocket science in the early 20th century, right? Like we are we're finally realizing that we have the means to take us out of our own take us out of our own orbit and take us into space. And as we, as humans begin to move closer and closer to that reality, our storytelling begins to, even though uh, at that point in time it was a little bit more fantastical, um, we're still filling in some of the questions and some of the, the thoughts that we have about what it means, what, um, <clears throat> what space travel could mean for us. We're now filling in those stories with stuff like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon um, to, you know, to name some of the early, um, the early heavyweight stories in terms of uh, early sci-fi. So that's uh, exploring areas of new knowledge is the second core tenet of science fiction literature. And you could just, not just literature, writing and storytelling in general, but uh, in this case, since this episode is more focused on literature, because obviously, you know, they weren't making movies in like the 1600s. Um, they were writing books and stories, though. Um, so we're going to kind of think of this as more literature based. Okay. And then the last core tenet of science fiction literature is the exploration of ourselves. There are a lot of deeply personal excuse me, sci-fi stories that use the window dressing that we talked about, that use time travel and aliens and dystopian societies. They're using this as some kind of analogy, whether it's a person, you know, whether it's something very very personal or even something that's um, you know, very, you know, to talk about an, uh, an issue in society that is having an effect on all of us, right? We're, we're exploring ourselves in multiple ways there. So think about it this way. A time travel story in which, uh, you know, protagonist sets out to change past events and the, you know, the results of his, um, of his time travel experiments and his need to meddle with the past result in a ripple effect that nearly destroys reality, and you could you know, see this as an analogy as, as a way to show how their failure to deal with the past and failure to confront their emotions of past events, um, you know, the, the destruction of reality is really the destruction of themselves, the destruction of their, of their mind, the destruction of their spirit, the destruction of their emotions, right? Um, all of these, in fact, a lot of the best sci-fi is very analogous and uh, a lot of these, um, you know, be it some kind of advanced tech or aliens or time travel, a lot of these, um, a lot of these devices are very much used uh, in an analogous sort of way to really tell a more human and emotional story. And I think those are those are by far the best, uh, by far to me at least, the best sort of sci-fi stories. The ones in which you can draw out, even if even if they're not necessarily intentional. Maybe you don't see the sci-fi story. Maybe you don't see the time travel story as. Um, as one about not being able to deal with the past, maybe you see it more as, uh, you know, depending on your background, maybe you see it more as missed opportunities, right? The, they're, you know, you're, you're seeing the, the fact that the protagonist missed opportunities that could have changed his life for the better. 
Um, maybe you're seeing um, a, a time travel story analogous to um, something happening, uh, some kind of modern technology that has the ability to change the world. And we're gonna we're gonna use time travel as sort of the stand-in for it because that would obviously be extraordinarily world-changing. Um, so that is the the last uh, the core tenet there: exploration of ourselves. So just a quick recap here: my three core tenets of sci-fi literature: pondering the future consequences of our current choices, exploring areas of new knowledge, and exploration of ourselves. Now I'm not sure I'm going to convince anyone to pick up a sci-fi novel or comic, or dig into the latest episode of some, like, alternate history show. But I, there's a lot of people that kind of, like, quote-unquote, hate sci-fi or just don't get it, don't like it. And, like, when I hear that, I guess that means they don't really like stories about ethics or morality. I guess they don't like discovering previously unknown knowledge. I guess they don't like to question their own decisions or imagine themselves in scenarios where they would be pushed to the limit. In fact, it sounds to me like these people don't like fiction at a fundamental level because those are the core, those are the key tenets of sci-fi. Those are the key tenets of storytelling, right? What is a story if it doesn't contain any of these? I suppose it's not really a story anymore. It's just a manual. And if that's what you like reading, God bless you. But that is really, really fucking boring. All right, let's move on now. As I mentioned at the very top, uh, sci-fi is much older than you think it is. Really, when we think of when we think of when we think of classifying genres in general, that's a much more modern um, interpretation of literature, and then obviously later on, movies and TV shows and things. It's honestly a much a very very recent invention in terms of literature and storytelling as a whole. Um, you know, think I, I know that I mentioned this in an episode. I can't remember which episode previously, but like think about it, like how. You know, think about how like um, how ubiquitous you know detective and cop stories are um, in in literature, especially more modern literature. And this modern literature, let's call it like the last like hundred years or so. Um, think about how ubiquitous those stories were. Well, there was a point in time where they didn't even exist because the idea of a police detective or a police force that wasn't you know, capturing escaped slaves or punishing the peasants, um, you know, on some rich landowner's land, the idea of a police force that was more of a modern police force didn't exist until, you know, really in in a meaningful way until like the 18th century. So there wasn't a categorization for police stories because they didn't exist. So a lot of the, a lot of the ideas and the ways we think about genres of, you know, horror, of drama, of, sci-fi fantasy that is much much later on and we're going to return to this term a little bit later on but really what all story all stories realistically that weren't cataloging something um you know some kind of historical record or something all stories were what is called speculative fiction or speculative literature um everything was came out of the same sort of bowl of soup basically before we began picking things out and putting them in their putting them in their own lane um so because of that like i said science fiction is a much older genre than you might realize and there's a bunch of i highlighted um i highlighted three time periods in particular here because i think they're the most important in terms of like if you were to sort of if you were to pick out like the three kind of examples that you were give you were to give to some kind of alien society about our sci-fi storytelling, I think these three time periods would be the time periods that you that you would highlight. And so we're going to start with ancient mythology, and then we're going to move on to, we're going to make a big, big jump, and we're going to go to the 19th and 20th centuries, and then we're going to make a not-so-big jump, and we're going to go to the golden age of science fiction, which is the 1930s to the 1950s. Um, and obviously there's more, there's more recognizable periods of science fiction, um, we're just not going to cover them in detail because they don't really matter quite that much. You have, there were um, science fiction writers in antiquity. Uh, there were Roman uh, historians and story writers and storytellers that um, talked about essentially what what amount to space travel and alien encounters. Um, when you get to more of when you get to the the seventeenth and eighteenth century uh, centuries, <clears throat> you have. Um, you have a lot of uh, important scientific thinkers, uh, actual scientists, 
who wrote kind of speculative um think of the, a lot of them think of them more like essays kind of speculating on what alien life might be like and what um space travel might be like and there are some actual um there are some actual fictional texts uh from this point in time as well um then obviously like i guess we're gonna get to the 19th and 20th century and we're covered then we're gonna cover the golden age of science fiction um and then when you get it to postmodern or you know contemporary science fiction um you're talking about the 1960s onward um and you know that's that's really highlighted by um authors like philip k dick uh william gibson uh, a lot of the a lot of the sci- sci-fi stuff that um a lot of the sci-fi subgenres really become more distinct and more um, more well defined and 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 filled up with different types of with different uh, works. Um, but like I said, we're not going to cover those. I don't think those are as important as the other ones that we're covering. So let's go back to it. Let's talk about ancient mythology and that really really the creation stories of humanity are our first science fiction and i think today we would call them religious texts even things that aren't explicitly explicitly religious they have religious undertones um you know we're talking about in some cases we are specifically mentioning gods and other deities and beings but if you take away all of that language and just describe some of the things that we're talking about you'll see exactly just how sci-fi these stories, these creation stories, and these ancient myths really are. So I'm going to do a little exercise here. I'm going to just kind of go with a stripped-down description of something that is detailed um, in an epic poem. So think about this, right? This epic poem talks about flying saucer-shaped ships that can travel to space, they had armadas in space, and they could even travel on and underwater. Uh, they were fueled by known elements like mercury, but they're also um, fueled by man-made substances uh, through, you know, through alchemy. They contained advanced weaponry. Uh, they used to battle each other. Like I said, there there were like space armadas, and they used to battle each other uh, for supremacy on Earth. And uh, in fact, there's a very notable space. There's a very no- notable aerial battle. That takes place in space and uh, in the atmosphere of Earth that ends in nuclear annihilation. And like I said, this is not an episode of Star Trek. Um, You know, this isn't the sad outcome of some episode of Star Trek. This is an epic poem. It's called the, I'm going to butcher this, but I think I have it right. The Mahabharata, detailing the battle of the the Kurukshetra. And this epic poem dates back to 3000 BCE. So millennia before the idea of aliens and flying saucers would dominate science fiction writing. In fact, these um, these flying saucer-shaped ships, they're known as vimanas in ancient India. And the, really, the, there, some of the the descriptions and, and some of the, the, the paintings and renderings of these things, um, they look more like, um, almost like imagine cake-shaped, like tiered cakes, but like made out of stone and metal. Um, they were kind of more representative of, they looked more like, um, you know, some kind of like a, like an ancient Hindu palace or something, but it, but it could fly. They even had, there are even some diagrams of these uh, Vimanas showing exactly how they would have been fueled, where the engines were, um, you know, how it achieved lift. It's a very, very interesting sort of, it's a very interesting sort of, um, you know, ancient mythology that when you that when you strip away all the religious language and strip away the idea that these are gods and deities, it just sounds like we're talking about two warring factions having a space battle for, you know, for the fate of Earth. Excuse me, I had a cough there. Which is something that is commonplace throughout all of sci-fi. So let's do another one here, ready? So, <clears throat> so, we, so again, that was uh, from the Vibanas of Ancient India. Um, you know, detailed in the Mahabharata, the epic poem Mahabharata. So let's uh, advance to more, I guess, more recent ancient times. I guess I don't know. Um, what if I told? What if I told you there are stories of beings who come down to Earth and randomly abduct people and take them with them? They they come down and take people at random, 
Sometimes they, sometimes there's a reason, you know, they're chosen for something special. Sometimes they aren't. But these beings appear, uh, come down, hit these people with columns of light and take them up with them. And while I'm describing a close encounter of the fourth, fourth kind, I'm also describing how angels take people to heaven. Um, that one is probably a little bit more obvious. But these descriptions, when, again, when you take away certain context, the context of religion, they really stand out. They really stand out more so as feeling like science fiction stories than some kind of religious parable or creation myth or anything else, right? Um, so again, like this idea that like when you go back far enough into the primordial literature soup, the label of science fiction or fantasy or horror or drama none of these labels are suitable because the concepts that drive the ideas of these genres that we know now didn't exist in human language yet. Everything was science fiction. Everything was horror. Everything was fantasy. Everything was speculative literature. And then from like a, a, a really like kind of fundamental storytelling standpoint, a lot of these ancient epics have the exact same building blocks as modern sci-fi stories. You know, like, especially the ones that, especially the sci-fi stories that are um, meant to um, sort of be analogous for some sort of human behavior or some sort of, you know, societal issue, right? So just take the, the epic of Gilgamesh, for example. Gilgamesh goes on, on the pursuit of immortality after his friend Enkaidu is killed. He doesn't achieve immortality, but he gains wisdom on the importance of leading a good life and positively impacting you know, his subjects and the people that he rules over because, you know, as he learns the memory of his good deeds being passed down generation to generation are what or how he can achieve immortality. That is how he is immortal by being a good king. And, you know, that once, uh, once he learns this, you know, Gilgamesh does become a better ruler, a more just and kind king. And that is how he achieves immortality. We could easily construct a story, a Gilgamesh story, um, just by changing a, uh, really a few things and a few a few terms, right? Um, we could easily construct a story about a mad scientist conducting illegal and, and unethical experiments to resurrect his wife who died because of some like terrible disease. And along the way, he realizes all the harm he is doing and how much more harm he could do if he's actually successful in in resurrecting his dead wife and instead he creates a cure you know devotes all of his time to creating a cure for those who are still alive and suffering from the same disease and you know <clears throat> same disease as his wife and thus he isn't remembered as a mad scientist but rather a hero you know in modern medicine in the medical world he's he's remembered forever because of that so you know even though he couldn't resurrect his wife he does sort of achieve a certain immortality for him and her by being the person who, you know, cures, or maybe not even cures, maybe just treats this terrible disease and gives everyone a better life. But let's just call it a cure for, you know, for sake of brevity here. The guy who creates the cure achieves that immortality through different means, right? Like it's really not that hard to flip these, um, to flip these, uh, to flip these stories, these ancient mythology stories. In fact, a lot of, a lot of good sci-fi writers have done that. They've taken, ancient mythology and ancient and stories of ancient beings and stuff and you can easily turn them into give them give them that sci-fi window dressing that we talked about and easily turn these into sci-fi stories all right so let's move on then to the 19th and 20th centuries this is where sci-fi really becomes more more crystallized and resembles the modern resembles the modern genre much more than previous eras in fact this is really when a lot of as I mentioned before, this is when a lot of genres really start, be they um, science fiction, be they fantasy, the detective story, um, you know, horror stories. They all kind of begin to crystallize and I wouldn't call it separate, but begin to diverge a little bit um, in the 19th and 20th centuries. So the stories of this era are still parables for human behavior, but the commentary is now on, on scientific advancement itself. And they use scientific advancement itself as as sort of a mirror, you know. And this is especially true in medicine and um, and machinery. So, in this time, especially the nineteenth century, we have a kind of a medical revolution, 
uh, of sorts. It's not full blown yet. I think that comes. Uh, I think that comes more in the 20th century. Um, but this is sort of the. I guess you'd call it maybe the first medical revolution. Um, we have germ theory um, is becoming more accepted. Psychology is an accepted is is now an accepted science. Uh, there are huge advancements in anatomy and surgery. This is in the in the mid nineteenth century. This is when we finally have anesthesia, so we can perform more complex surgeries without you know without horribly you know ca- without causing horrible horrible pain and killing the person uh, that we're trying to operate on. Um, you know, also the the way that disease was generally treated um, advanced too. And this also happens to coincide with the actual industrial revolution, right? This is the point in time in in modern society and where machines begin building every bit of our new world from buildings to um, to some of these medical advancements are made by machinery are some you know a lot of the jobs and things that people used to do uh, you know farming jobs uh, cultivating jobs things like that are all being replaced by machines the machines are coming. Machines are coming for our jobs um, at this point in time. So it's not really a coincidence that at this point in time that stories like Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, an early psychological, I think it's, an, I think, I think the original is a novella. So like an early psychological novella, Frankenstein, obviously, um, you know, a, a, a cautionary tale about advancing, you know, the, the rapid advancement of medical technology. And then how about... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea um, as a sort of taking our machine might um, to the to the seas. Uh, the Steam Man of the Prairies, Brave New World. These are all very popular works of fiction from may, the mid-19th century into the early 20th century. Uh, sorry, I had a cough again there. Uh, so this period, you could think about it as um, our curiosity about our own thoughts and our fear of how fast science was moving around us, Right. Um, those are probably like the two sort of the two most important parts, but then also how we are going to take our collective knowledge on how, how we've sort of made our lives, our lives easier for ourselves and how we can take that sort of newfound knowledge into the untamed world. And this, uh, this time period also produces a lot of sort of names that are become much more recognizable than in previous, um, than in previous, uh, eras. So like this is when we get you know H.G. Wells. This is when we get Edgar Allan Poe. Um, probably most famously of this, Mary Shelley, uh, Jules Verne, Edgar Rice Burroughs, just to name a few. This era really kind. <clears throat> this era really gets the ball rolling for the for what comes just a you know a few decades later. Um, but all of it starts here, and all of it starts because you know with um, as I mentioned the core tenet, as I mentioned previously, that our sort of um, that's uh, our second core tenet, exploring areas of new knowledge. Well, this 19th and 20th century really is about exploring areas of new knowledge. Um, and in, like, as I said before, in particular, in particular, how medicine and machinery and industry advanced so rapidly in the course of, you know, we call it 100 years, but really just a couple of decades, how far things advanced and how our our collective consciousness began writing about how these advancements are going to affect us. So that's what the the 19th and 20th century really are, sort of maybe the maybe the best reflection of that second core tenet. All right, so let's do it. Let's advance a couple decades and get to the golden age of science fiction, which runs uh, essentially from the 1930s through the 1950s. I think um, you could talk about the, the early part of this, the 30s part of this, um, kind of being dominated by the serialization of stories in pulp magazines and comic strips. And these really made sci-fi boom big time in this period. Uh, In fact, they really, this isn't quite accurate, but for a while there, sci-fi serializations and comics are the only serials and comics for a little bit. You do have, obviously, we do have um, some of the early DC uh, superheroes come out of the scene, but... You know, Batman is a far cry from what Batman becomes, right? In fact, most of the most of the early superheroes, um, aside from Superman, uh, they're basically just detective stories with guys in masks, essentially. Um, so, 
is Superman being the, the sort of the first exception and really where we have a divergent a divergence um, in in comic book storytelling uh, and obviously in serial storytelling as well as well. But really, this early part is dominated by stuff like Buck Rogers, uh, Flash Gordon. In fact, they're eerily similar because Flash Gordon was sort of the answer to Buck Rogers. I can't remember which companies had which. I want to say like Knight Pub- or King or Knight Publishing did Flash Gordon as like the response to Buck Rogers. I think if you were to ask, <clears throat> if you were to ask most people who have a general knowledge of sci-fi, they think of Flash Gordon first, and I would say Flash Gordon's the more famous um, sci-fi character uh, that comes out of this time period. But uh, Buck Rogers was first, and you know Buck Rogers has had some multiple, multiple different incarnations, uh, movies and stuff, uh, even uh, made over the years. But Flash Gordon certainly the the more famous of the two of these two sci-fi serials from the from the 1930s. Um, so obviously, uh, sorry, gotten off a little point there, but yeah, yeah, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. Superman is your early comic is your early comic divergence into into sci-fi and these are also some of the you know these kind of represent a lot of the first film and TV adaptations there is a Flash Gordon movie in the 1930s maybe it's a Buck Rogers movie like right after that as well and then obviously Superman um Superman is serialized uh well it's a it's a it's a it's sort of short I guess it's not really a TV show at first it's hard to kind of define it because we don't have we don't have TV shows. We didn't have TV the way that we think of, in you know now as we the same way it was in like the 1940s. But Superman is your first. Um, Superman becomes your first sort of TV show, uh, your your first superhero TV show, and one of your first uh, continuous sci-fi TV shows uh, is Superman. I think so. That's like a big part of it. That's especially the early era, and this also this earlier also produces a lot of these adventure serials. So like the beginnings of what would become Indiana Jones starting this time period. Like I said, the detective story uh, is a, becomes a, a, a slowly starts to become a bigger, bigger part of these comics and serials um, until eventually most of the early superheroes are detectives, detectives and masks. And then that kind of become, becomes its own genre in, um, in book form. And then obviously later adapted for movies in this time period as well. But I think, what is most important about this time period is this this era produces produces maybe the it's hard to say the the most important but certainly certainly in terms of science fiction literature the three most influential writers um are writing in this time period and so, and they are called collectively the big 3 of science fiction and that is Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and Robert A. Heinlein. Those three collectively produced the bedrock of modern science fiction. And what I mean by that is this group creates story structure, character archetypes, all the way down to smaller concepts and specific imagery and specific ideas. Um, You know, imaginary, you know, uh, speculative politics, speculative... Um, speculative inventions, things like that all are created in this era by these three or popularized by these three um, in this era and that are still used almost unchanged in modern times. Without Asimov, without Clark, without Heinlein, it's very likely that it's very likely that the next wave of writers in the um, in the modern era from the postmodern era, really don't not that they wouldn't be writing science fiction but i i'm i think that their science fiction writing would be very very different if not for if not for the big three um so we're going to get into each we're going to get into each one of the big three a little bit and kind of i kind of separated um they're just we're just going in alphabetical order here there's not like any kind of hierarchy or importance necessarily given to these but i'm going to go through and give you kind of a um Kind of what um, I guess their contributions to both science fiction as a genre, but also to you know their impact elsewhere because the because of these because these three were so important and so prolific and well so important and so prolific their reach extends beyond science fiction and extends into more of the real world as well. So uh, that's what we're going to do here to wrap up this particular episode.
All right, so let's start it off with Isaac Asimov. So Asimov not only wrote science fiction, and by the way, Asimov wrote a ton. He has like something like 500 published works. But a lot of them, um, most of them, the vast majority were science fiction. But he also wrote a lot of nonfiction kind of how-to type books for some really complex subjects. Almost like very early, um, the, almost like very early, like, um, you know, computers for dummies kind of, kind of books. Um, but they were like tackling, again, like some really thick stuff and really putting it into more of a, more of lay terms for people to understand. Uh, so like one of them, uh, <clears throat> one of the more notable ones are Asimov's Chronology of the World. Think about like his sort of explaining what he feels are sort of the most important events um, at, at critical junctures in, in human history. Like the, the events and the, the times and places and events that sort of lead to, um, you know, lead to advancements that lead to where we are now. Essentially, or the when he wrote it would have been like the I think like the seventies or eighties, seventies um, <clears throat> maybe. So it's Asimov's chronology of the world. Um, how about Asimov's guide to the Bible? It is a very sort of think about it more of as an, an encyclopedia of the Bible, um, complete with like maps where things would have been. Um, it's a very like a more analytical and historical look at okay if the Bible is real. Here's here's where they here's where they were where they traveled to here were the important people the background that we know about them you know their lives that they lived um, a, a very a, a way that only a real scientist can kind of look at the Bible so Asimov's Guide to the Bible and then um, maybe one of maybe one of his most famous um, sort of how tos or guides or whatever you know for an early for dummies book understanding physics. And this was a very, um, this was a, a, lay, a layman's attempt to sort of, or I guess an, an expert's attempt to sort of give the layman insight into these uh, these concepts of physics. Um, you know, obviously this concept, these concepts have expanded since, I think this book came out in the 60s. Some of these concepts have expanded, but you could pick this book up right now and sort of get an insight to understanding, um, you know, how we determine distances in space or you know, where objects, how we, how we chart, uh, whether or not, you know, there's a planet, you know, moving around a star, that kind of stuff, um, is in understanding physics. And it's a very, it's laid out in a very normal sort of language, you know, not, not esoteric calculations and, and algorithms and that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's very, very straightforward and very down to earth language to explain physics. Uh, so that's understanding physics. Asimov is probably also, in, in terms of in terms of the the actual sci-fi storytelling and how one of the ways that he kind of one of the ways that he really sort of um, defined the genre is his classification of sci-fi and he said that the sci-fi stories boil down to three general types of stories they are gadget stories they are adventure stories or they are social stories so a gadget story revolves around the invention of the device itself or the device itself. So think about it as man invents car. We're going to detail the story about how man invented the car. The adventure story, how this device or invention helps or hinders the character's quest. So um, our protagonist is driving the car somewhere to do something uh, would be the adventure story. And then we have the social story. How the device or invention affects people, affects society, affects cultures, you know, whatever. So, so we've gone from man invents car uh, and details the invention of the car to man drives the car someplace. And now the social story would be man is stuck in traffic. That would be the social story. The, his, his, his invention is now, um, everyone's using his invention and now it is, uh, <clears throat> now it is, uh, he is being directly affected by the consequence of everyone adopting this invention. So that's, that's a very, very simplistic overview. But if you really think about every sci-fi story, they really kind of boil down to these things. I think more popular recently, uh, more popular recently, uh, certainly the social story, right, are the more popular stories recently. But adventure stories um, were, were amongst like the first, the first and most popular types of, of sci-fi stories and gadget stories. I don't want to say that they're more rare, but I think 
the gadget stories kind of have in order for it to be a little bit more interesting you have to have like a little bit more with it than other than like the invention of something but gadget stories obviously certainly exist and uh, probably probably more probably something that we don't see as often anymore in uh in modern sci-fi and then in terms of in terms of story in terms of very specific story stuff that other authors abide by and other authors cite and stuff that was important in his own works as i mentioned before i had my three core tenets of uh you know what 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 uh you know what is sci-fi the three core tenets of sci-fi um this is isaac asimov comes up with the three laws of robotics that inform a lot of his stories um particularly particularly like uh what the, the robot wars foundation um i know there's some other stories that uh, the three laws of robot i robot Three Laws of Robotics uh, come to fruition in a lot of his works. Um, and those, and they're so influential, in fact, that some kind of version of these Three Laws of Robotics have made their way into other science fiction stories involving whether, they ro- whether they're robots or artificial intelligence or, you know, androids, stuff like that. So, real quickly here, the Three Laws of Robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or, through an action, allow a human being to come to harm. So, in other words, you know, the, the robots are here for our protection. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. So, they're there to protect us and they're there to serve us. However, they can't serve us in the harm of others. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Um, so the robot has to, so not only are they, are they there to protect us and serve us, they're also there to protect themselves unless, <clears throat> un, they're also there to protect themselves unless if their existence would somehow violate one of the first two laws. And the idea of these three laws of robotics is that it sort of creates an airtight seal Um for artificial intelligence and you know in asimov's time i'm sure artificial intelligence was a concept but they just called them robots Uh, he just called them robots in his stories but the idea was that these three laws kind of created an airtight seal to keep to keep artificial intelligence to keep robots from advancing too far from gaining sentience and you know wanting to be human and obviously those violations of those three laws become you know really excellent uh, storytelling devices for Asimov and other authors um, around this time. And then obviously in later generations, other authors, uh, you know, screw around with, uh, you know, how, what would happen if one of the three laws of robotics was um, circumvented. Um, in fact, that's the the whole point of the movie adaptation uh, of iRobot with Will Smith, you know, a robot that can, a robot that can, uh, you know, or I should say, how the three laws of robotics kind of gets taken to an extreme by a, an artificial superintelligence and how it actually takes a robot to circumvent. A robot that's able to circumvent the three laws can ultimately defeat the the logic, um, the extreme logic of the robotic superintelligence. All right, so let's move on to Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke is your hard sci-fi pioneer, and we're going to talk about sci-fi types a little bit later on in in a later episode um but basically hard sci-fi is in which the scientific accuracy and um you know the the details of how certain pieces of sci-fi be they devices or be they concepts whatever how those things worked right those the scientific accuracy was essentially just as important as the social and emotional beats um within the story and this makes a lot of sense for Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke has an, had an ex- extensive background in practical applied advanced physics and mathematics. He was, uh, you know, during World War II, he was working um, working for the British Army uh, on radar advancements and uh, inventions that would enhance, um, you know, radar detection and radar evasion. Uh, he was the president of the British Planetary Society. Uh, it's a society that is um, sort of, uh, puts the promotion of ethical space exploration and the need to go to space, you know, as like a priority, <clears throat> as a priority for, um, you know, for for all governments and societies. Um, so detailed and so 
it's, excuse me, I jumped a, jumped my train of thought there a little bit. Um, he also, obviously, because he has a, a background in um, in physics and mathematics, he also wrote a lot of uh, nonfiction books as well, in the same way that Asimov wrote a lot of nonfiction books. And in fact, it was Werner von Braun used Arthur C. Clarke's 1951 nonfiction book, The Exploration of Space, to convince Kennedy that it was, in fact, possible to get to the moon. Um, that's how influential Arthur C. Clarke's um, knowledge in writing was um, in, in his time. Um, in fact, he was, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke was brilliant with a capital B, um, and he was so visionary and so forward-looking that geostationary orbit, the, the way that we have weather satellites and communication satellites in orbit right now around Earth, that was basically his idea. Uh, he wrote uh, a paper that laid the foundation for a network of communication satellites and how they could be locked into orbit to serve very specific areas. Um, and so the distance for the for geostationary orbit is 22,236 miles, to be exact. And it's actually now called the Clark Orbit, is where you put satellites into geosynchronous or geostationary orbit. You put them into the Clark Orbit. And in terms of in terms of his in terms of what he means to science fiction writing in particular in, in the science fiction genre, I think you know his stories and works are all they're fantastic. But I think he's the one who gets who gets he's the one who breaks through and gets um, you know the most credit in film. Um, his collaboration with Stanley Kubrick on 2001: A Space Odyssey, um, and there's varying accounts to how much. Obviously, Arthur C. Clarke had a lot of input in the in the story for the movie. Uh, he's also working on a novelization of the story at the same time. Um, so it's not like it's it, so the the novel the novel Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. That's not the source material for the movie. They're made at the same time, and I know this still happens. It's not as common practice as it used to be. But there was a lot of there were a lot of movies like that in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, uh, where you released the movie and the book at you know around the same time. Um, and this is one of those cases. But 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, the combination of Kubrick's storytelling ability with Arthur C. Clarke's, you know, insistence on realism and accuracy produced maybe the most, if not the most, one of the most dissected stories uh, and films in both film journalism, obviously, and in film criticism, but also in academia, um, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey is is lauded in both the entertainment and the academic world. And, like, there are very, very few authors, directors, auteurs, anyone that have films that cross over in such a profound way that they are still talked about. Um, they're still talked about today uh, in, with, you know, both reverence and investigation for, like, the meanings behind things. And, you know, it's just... Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is such a an incredible trip, um, but also it's it's weird. It is a trip, literally. It's one of the trippiest movies you'll ever see, but still also balances and maintains the the hard sci-fi in which Arthur C. Clarke was the the main pioneer. It's just fucking fantastic. All right, now let's wrap this up with Robert A. Heinlein. I'll I'll say that he's probably the most controversial of of the big three and we'll get to a little bit we'll get to why here in a little bit but i'll, I'll start off with you know the general background of him and you know the general background before we get to the, the more controversial stuff so heinlein brings to science fiction writing more of really some some of the the more modern stuff that we're investigating with sci-fi now and that's the um the investigation or the interest in human and societal effects of, of scientific advancement um, you know, looking into personal moral dilemmas, societal turnover, um, and political themes. They just run throughout his work. This would have been really transformative for a lot of sci-fi during this time period. Um, as I mentioned before, when you think of like 1930s, 1940s sci-fi, a lot of it is like the kind of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and, you know, to a lesser degree Superman kind of storytelling where it's very fantastical kind of adventurous stuff. Um, I would say it's more, you know, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's a little bit fluffier, um, a little bit lighter than what Heinlein would be writing about, um, you know, just, you know, a few years later. 
um, you know, so we're talking more of these pulp action adventure stories to stories that were more that you could really look at as more philosophical inquiries into how science um, and scientific advancement are affecting us. Uh, his storytelling style itself was a little bit a little bit unique um, in that he spent more time in the first person with characters, you know, dealing with these the people dealing with the social issues and the political themes. Um, we got to see more of the personal dilemma that the characters are facing and the emotion that the, these characters are facing with kind of being pieces and parts of this system that maybe maybe they're part of the system creating um, the social issues, maybe or maybe they're the ones fighting back against it. Whatever it doesn't really matter. Um, we, so we get this sort of interesting connection um, within the same story that kind of looks at like both the macro and micro level of some kind of societal or philosophical exploration or issue. Um, he is actually very often credited with coining the term speculative fiction. It's probably not one hundred percent accurate, but one of the he uses it in an essay that kind of succinctly characterizes um, something that I, you know, we, we kind of kicked off this episode with and how he preferred this term speculative fiction to science fiction because it felt it encompassed more of the social and political aspects, obviously, that he was interested in and and how, you know, they might be influenced by science and by scientific advancement and how everything could possibly be influenced by science or scientific advancement or just general advancement of knowledge in general, you know, in general, excuse me, I just got really repetitive there. It's that, you know, you could, you could take a horror story um, like Frankenstein, you know, and, and see how it fits into this umbrella of speculative fiction in the same way that you could take, in the same way that you could take uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and talk about um, how the emergence of psychology as a new, you know, as a new kind of accepted science um, how that was maybe unintentionally an exploration of the human mind and maybe our first psychological story um, or psychological thriller, I guess. <clears throat> so really that term speculative fiction kind of fits, especially when you go the farther back in time you go, uh, more stories fit under, the, fit, under, fit under that umbrella. Um, so really all fiction is sort of speculative fiction, even dramas and things like that. We're just kind of making stuff up and we're, we're making stuff up. We're making it up on the basis that something real is affecting it. And we're kind of doing that investigation of when something real affects, affects us and how that might unfold. Um, so he is often credited with coining that particular term. So this is where he gets a little bit controversial. Um, Heinlein is definitely the grandfather of military and political science fiction. Um, and because of, and this is because of his background, right? He was uh, he was a Navy man. Um, he's a, he served in the Navy, and you know, a lot of his a lot of his novels are about his kind of expounding upon his experience in the Navy, and thusly they're very much they're very much right wing, borderline fascist stories, um, with a lot of language that is very clearly xenophobic or racist, and I think. That's just it's just an important note, right? And it's not really surprising. I'm gonna go ahead and make a wild guess that a lot of people that served in the military between the years 1930 and 1950 maybe might have been a little bit more right wing than today's people or even today's soldiers. Um, and you know the attitudes of people towards towards the other, uh, right, weren't exactly at an all time high in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. So it's not really shocking. I, I don't... <clears throat> I, I There's, you know, further investigation of his writing. Uh, even some of his harshest critics don't paint him outright as a racist, but more as just a, a person who is reflecting a lot of general attitudes from someone who would have been on the... more on the conservative side at, at this point in time. Um, so... I just think that's important to note, right? Like Robert Robert Heinlein isn't he isn't H.P. Lovecraft, who was an unabashed, awful racist. He is someone whose whose views have not whose views we look at now as being kind of um, of their time. I think is like the the the, the phrase that we would use, right? Um, but I don't think it takes away from his writing. In fact, I think it really 
I think it really, it really, it really help has helped inform this type of writing and um, adaptation in the future, because we are talking about his stories get into civic duty and civil rights. Um, they get into sort of the glorification, I suppose, of authoritarian leadership, um, free will, um, obviously xenophobia. And a lot of these, a lot of these sort of concepts are all rolled into his 1959 novel. You might have heard of it before, Starship Troopers. Um, and I think because I think because this novel is written from more of a point of view that sort of favors the authoritarian, um, you know, leadership and um, a fascist government. I think because he's kind of writing from that point, particular point of view, that. It really makes his works um, ready for critical exploration. You know, like what is wrong with the, the ideas that he's espousing? What is, you know, we can go back. You can go back and look at Starship Troopers and pick out the problem, the very problematic things. The way they describe the alien bugs um, was was using language that very much would have been reminiscent of how U.S. soldiers um, and you know U.S. military propaganda propaganda would have talked about Germans or the Japanese in World War II. Um, you know, Koreans in in the 1950s. Um, I'm not going to use some I'm not going to use the racist terms that they would have used to describe them, but the the language in Starship Troopers to describe the others, the aliens, the bugs um, is very very um, it's very very reminiscent of that kind of language. And then I think this sort of makes for this is why Starship Troopers, and I will maintain this is, I think Starship Troopers, one of the best movies in the 90s, one of the best satires, period. Uh, Paul Verhoeven is a master of satire. And because because this book and a lot of his works are very much from a very particular point of view, they really open themselves up to a lot of examination and very interesting adaptations and satires that I think a lot of other books, if they were written, um, if they were written in a less sincere manner, maybe not maybe really wouldn't be that open to examination as they are. Um, so I think you could, I think Heinlein in this case very much is, um, is important, important for, you know, his creation of these, of these genres and sort of maturing the way we, the way sci-fi stories went, but also as sort of a, a tentpole figure to examine and kind of go back and look at his stuff and really dig into, really dig into it to see, you know what lessons could be learned because of the way he was writing. Uh, in terms of really specific, in terms of really specific story details that persist not only that persist to this day in almost untouched forms. Um, maybe you've heard, maybe you've read a story wherein a soldier is wearing a, a mechanized exoskeleton to uh, to do battle. That is straight out of Starship Troopers, something he created. Um, space Marines. The the whole idea of what a Space Marine is. Dropping in from orbit to break the enemy lines. Um, you know, the their function and their task on, on ships in, in space battles. Um, you know, boarding enemy ships, uh, you know, as like a surprise attack. All this straight from Starship Troopers. Robert Heinlein created it. So... Again, I think um, so. Those are your big three. Just to wrap up here real quick, Isaac Asimov, R Arthur C. Clarke, and Robert A. Heinlein. They all have their certain. They all occupy certain um, certain roles. They're the big three all occupy very certain roles. Um, you know, Asimov as the very prolific writer, um, Arthur C. Clarke as the uh, as the scientist. You know, the the hardline scientist of the group, and then Heinlein as the uh, as the writer that uh, really opens themselves up to a lot of investigation and uh, reflection on on maybe um, maybe a Heinlein best best described as a mirror um, you know for society to look at itself and determine whether or not the things that we're thinking uh, the 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 way that the collective society is thinking is appropriate or not um, but all three very very important uh, figures maybe the most important figures. Um, in sci-fi at this time and maybe altogether really before you know before we get into the 1960s and we get into philip k dick and gibson and some other guys and gals of course but um <clears throat> i think that's enough for this kind of intro episode i'm trying to i'm going to try to get you 
two episodes per week. Keep these a little bit on the shorter side. Um, and, uh, you know, not quite mini-sodes, but we're not going to get into too much uh, for each one. So that's that's this first uh, episode. This, this first Sci-Fi Origins episode. Um, you know, exper- you know, expounding upon all the stuff in literature and, and why sci-fi literature is so important. And then, uh, as I said, our next one will be on the early radio plays and cinema and how sci-fi really helped shape cinema. So we will see you next time.